Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special on The Box Trolls, the new stop-motion animated film from Portland's Leica Studios. And I'm excited about my guest today. Joining me from Slate's DC studio is Nell Minow. Hi, Nell. Hello. So we've been talking about doing one of these for quite a while. I'm glad you could, you could come in and do this one. I couldn't have picked a better movie to want to spoil, so I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I've been waiting for the right one. So, so Nell is a movie critic. Her work can be found at moviemom.com. And Nell, would it be safe to say that you focus on family films in general? No, it would be more accurate to say that I focus on giving parents an idea of what's in the movie. So it's really that no man's land of the PG-13 where parents need a lot more guidance from me or even some of the soft R's. So I, I review pretty much everything except the hardcore horror. Right. Well, I was saying before we started taping that this is kind of an interesting test case because the Portland's Leica Studios tends to make, they've only made three animated films so far, Coraline, mm-hmm. Paranorman, and now The Box Trolls. And their movies, as I was just talking about in my review yesterday, tend to dip into the world of horror, psychological horror a little bit, you might say. They're, they're pretty scary for children's movies. That's true, but that's a grand tradition that goes back to, as Bruno Benelheim said, about fairy tales. I think that they're very much in line with the kind of scary stuff that we see in, you know, Beauty and the Beast or uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, it's true. Now, the archetypal material they deal with is definitely familiar from fairy tales, but the way they deal with it, and we'll get into this with the box Mm -hmm. trolls, it's more true of Paranorman than any of their movies probably, really does sometimes seem to be quoting actual genre horror filmmaking. Definitely. But let's, so let's get into the box trolls. Uh, I'm mentioning it as a Leica movie, sort of the way that you talk about Pixar movies as the latest from Pixar. Of course, it is also created by individuals. It's co-directed by Anthony Stackey and Graham Annable, who are sort of longtime um, Leica disciples and written also by, you know, animation writers. So it has to me the feeling, this movie, of, of something that's been put together by a large crew of people that are on the same page about a very complicated project. Yeah, I was lucky enough to uh, go to visit the studio and do a set visit last uh, spring, and you got a sense of just the incredible devotion of armies of people from every possible category of human endeavor, going back to sort of Bronze Age technology of people with little soldering irons and and fishing wire, uh, up to uh, the kind of level of uh, computer algorithms that could get you to the Mars rover. Wow, that must have been so much fun. So you actually saw them moving the little fish? figurines around? I I got to move a fish myself. What are they made of? Some kind of plasticine, the way Wallace and Gromit are? Yeah, they have uh, wire armatures inside so that when you move them, they stay moved. They don't bounce back. And uh, the secondary characters, like the ladies in the ballroom scene, don't have as many ways of moving as the main characters. Also, there are many, many, many different, I don't want to spoil anybody's pleasure in watching the movie, but there are many different uh, snatchers and many different eggs and all of the main characters. There are several different ones. But even so, they sometimes don't have enough because they have different studios working at the same time, different sets, and they're doing different scenes at the same time. And when they don't have the doll that they need, and they call them dolls, when they don't have the doll that they need, they they always say, eggs doesn't want to come out of his trailer today. Right. (laughs) That is so crazy. I wish I could see one of these things in, in in progress once or watch a really extensive DVD featurette about the making of one of these stop motion things. All right. So, well, you do get a little glimpse if you stay through the credits. You do get just a tiny little glimpse. That's of what true. It's like. And we should spoil that. We should get to that. I love that moment in the credits. It's one of my favorite moments in the movie. But I mm-hmm. usually start these spoiler specials with some kind of overall reaction just just quickly so people will know, are you going into this as a pro or a con? And I would say I'm disappointed to say it because I was so excited about so many things about this movie and I love the look of it and the craft of it. But I would say I'm a slight con. What about you? 
I'm a definite pro, even discounting for what I would call junket goggles. This is only the second junket I've ever been on. I normally don't go, but I'm just so in love with this studio that I had to go. Uh, I definitely like the movie more than you did. Right. Okay. So let's get, well, we, that's, that's good. I like when there's a disagreement. So let's get a little bit into summarizing the story and then we can get into why. So The Box Trolls is uh, not an original story. It's based on a children's novel by Alan Snow called There Be Monsters. And it imagines this world, a sort of dystopic, but not futuristic, a sort of dystopic past world that resembles Victorian era England. Um, but it seems to be this individual city state on its own that sort of perched on this fairy tale looking mountain and it's called Cheesebridge. And this town is completely driven by the desire for cheese. I mean, it becomes fairly obvious partway through that cheese is sort of a, a stand-in for money or for capital and for social status and power as well. Cheese is the thing that everybody in Cheesebridge is after. Right? right. And so the town is divided into these two classes of humans, the red hats and the white hats. And there's not a lot of detail about how sort of things came to be stratified in this way. But essentially, the white hats are the elite who have all the power and most of the cheese. And the red hats are the working class people who kind of keep the, the, the town going day to day. And then there are the box trolls. You want to take it away and describe the box trolls? They were my favorite part of the movie, personally. They are wonderful. The box trolls live in this fabulous subterranean cavern that is tricked up with all kinds of Rube Goldberg contraptions they put together with a little petty theft, but mostly taking things out of the garbage. And uh, the box trolls are kind of mildly androgynous characters who wear boxes, and the boxes give them their name. So whatever was in the box is what their name is. So one is named Fish, one is named Oil Can, one is named uh, Shoes, one is named Eggs. And Eggs is a human baby who we'll find out why later was left with the box trolls and thinks sort of like in the Jungle Book, he thinks he's a box troll and he's raised with them, although Noam Chomsky would be very excited to see that somehow, even though they all talk like mumbles from Fat Albert, he speaks the king's English. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Somehow he reached the critical period and managed to learn the language of his, his people, even though he had never been among them. And the trolls barely speak at all. For a long time, I thought they couldn't speak, and they could just mm -hmm. sort of make grunts of assent and little little cute sounds of fear. But they have a language of their own, which, which eggs can translate for, for other humans, right? Right, yeah. But are generally and silent. And they eat bugs, and they garden, and they're just a merry little crew. And uh, Eggs is very, very happy with them and very loved and well cared for. So, yeah, you're getting at right now, all of that stuff is established in, in this really nice opening montage that had me so excited about the movie. I think actually a lot of my disappointment of, from, with the box trolls came from the fact that it never quite lived up to that first montage where you see Eggs growing up among them. He starts out as a baby, and then you see him growing and playing with Fish, who's kind of his stand-in parent, sort of his surrogate father among the box trolls. And the music is great, and the Rube Goldberg contraptions are great, and the whole world of the box trolls seems so exciting. And I felt like it was really abandoned for much of the rest of the movie, because once we join the humans up on the surface, that seems to be where the, the story wants to stay. Yes, the real uh, energy of the story, I guess I would say, comes from Snatcher, the character voiced by Ben Kingsley. And I have to tell you one thing that I learned, because I also got to interview the cast, and Ben Kingsley told me that he did his entire part lying down. He said that it. he felt that in order to play Snatcher, he had to completely relax his shoulders and his neck. And so he did the whole thing lying Interesting. down. Interesting. I mean, I, that must have had to do with the sheer production of that voice because it's a really huge, big voice. I mean, I don't even know if it was, it was electronically augmented in some way, but he sounds like he's booming out of a jumbotron at a stadium. And as we will soon be spoiling, he actually does a second voice at some point in the, in the film as well. 
Um, so, uh, in, in a, in a, this is perhaps one of the reasons that I liked the movie better than you did. One thing I liked is that when you have a, a movie that is going to be for kids or for families, it's always a little bit of a challenge to try to figure out what the motivation of the villain is. It has to be something that's really viscerally understandable to kids and scary but not too scary. And I like the fact that what this character, Snatcher, wanted more than anything was just to fit in with the cool crowds because I thought that was something kids really could understand. Basically, it's middle school. Right. Well, yeah, the fact that he is a status-seeking, you know, he's sort of a needy social climber, I think is actually a good motivation for his character. But I didn't feel like there was enough growth and enough progress in the Snatcher character to keep him interesting for the full running time of the movie. Well, uh, I'm going to disagree with that a little bit because, as I said, we do find out. Do you want to spoil now what sure, we find sure, out about his away. kind of secret identity? All right. Well, at, at one point, uh, very similar to uh, one of my favorite scenes in Coraline, which I think is a masterpiece. I don't mean to suggest that this movie is in that category, although I did like this movie a lot. Uh, there's a scene in this one, as in Coraline, where uh, there's a kind of a vaudeville-esque uh, British dance hall kind of musical number from, what's her name, Lady Fifi or something? Thing, Lady Fufu. Yeah, I can't and, remember something very French. Yeah, and uh, she's this huge woman who very operatic, uh, very extreme in her performance, and she tells a tragic tale to try to do what Snatcher's trying to do, which is inflame the uh, community to make them afraid of the box trolls. He thinks his his ticket to Cool Town is to um, is to make everybody afraid of the box trolls so that he can be the hero and save the day from them. And then it turns out that that is. In fact, Snatcher, that is in fact Ben Kingsley also, that he has been, I don't want to say cross-dressing because there's really no suggestion of that. I'm just going to say he was in disguise. Right. And so to me, that was another example of how he's so uncomfortable in his own skin. He's hugely in denial about, you already said, the number one status uh, symbol in the town is cheese. This man is massively lactose intolerant. Yeah, and now you're getting to another thing that I really didn't like that much about the movie, but that may really appeal to some viewers. I actually do like the fact that Leica is willing to go to weird places that kids' movies don't usually go. But one of the weird right. places they go in this movie, which they haven't in their previous two, is gross-out humor. So Snatcher is, as you say, allergic to cheese, and yet he's obsessed with cheese and must have it. And so there's several different scenes, um, the, the culminating in a climactic one, but throughout, where you see him getting all these pustules on his face and blowing up into weird shapes, and it's just re- and his stomach is gurgling loudly on screen and it's just really, really gross. It is kind of gross. And I don't know. I think that may be something that some kids are going to like and some kids are going to get grossed out by. But I'm interested in hearing what you think about the uh, the dual life of Snatcher because I read some complaints uh, online from people who said it was transphobic. And let's just say that Leica has got a great record of being very gay friendly. They took a lot of heat in the last movie, Paranorman, because there's a a very brief joke in it where a girl's been hitting on a character and and doesn't realize that he's gay. And they, they, in their ad, their original ad for this movie, they said some families have two mommies, some families have two daddies and all of that. So I really feel that this is not supposed to be or should be taken as any kind of a transphobic uh, 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 plot development. Yeah, I sort of agree. I mean, it is, it is sort of an old-fashioned vision of of drag, and you know, a sort of funny man in drag. But I don't, I didn't sense any any creepy homophobia about it. And as you say, the movie is wall to wall lined with affirmations. Too many, I thought, and a little bit too uh, thematically underlined. But but affirmations of the alternative family, right? That it's better to be brought up by a bunch of box trolls than by a mom and dad who don't pay attention to you, which is the situation of Winifred, who we haven't even gotten to yet. Another major character in the movie. Yeah. Well, I 
I wanted to, to, to start with Lord Portly Rind, her father, with whose voice of Jared Harris. And he is sort of, uh, he's the mayor of the town. He's the top of the, of the heap as far as the social structure goes. And he's just kind of an effete, uh, snobbish, uh, vacant person. And he's, a, he's a little attracted to Ben Kingsley and drag. And there is a sort of a funny moment where he's a little disconcerted to find out that he's been having feelings for somebody who's not what he thought. But when Winifred, who's voiced by Elle Fanning, the sister of uh, Leica's first heroine, Carol- Coraline. Oh, Dakota right, of Fanning. course. I forgot that yeah. Dakota Fanning was Coraline. Yeah. Um, she, uh, Winifred is this girl who's been given everything by her parents except any kind of attention or affection. And she is the other kind of lead in the story beside uh, Eggs. Now, see, for me, again, uh, this is a major, major problem in the emotional trajectory of a character, which is that Winifred is set up as this neglected child. It's really quite bleak. I mean, her her father pays no attention to her whatsoever and only cares about tasting cheese with his fancy cronies. Her mother is this kind of absent. I'm not sure her mother speaks a single line in the entire movie. She does. Talk about wasting Tony Collette. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's Tony Collette. But what does she say? How does she interact? She has no no Nothing. real role has, in the movie at all. She has like one line. And so if what that's about, I mean, if we are trying to be Bruno Bettelheim here and get into <laughs> child psychology archetypes, like Winifred's yes. got some major abandonment problems that seem to just sort of drift away at the end of the movie. There's not, there, there isn't any resolution or progress or, or encounter with her parents either. I was sort of looking for her to emancipate herself legally and go live among the box trolls. <laughs> I think that may be chapter two of box trolls, too. Uh, Actually, uh, one thing that I did like about the movie is that, as with many movies with child protagonists, really is it about the resilience of these kids. I mean, you talk about how adaptable Eggs was. In one respect, he's adaptable. He eats bugs. There's a cute scene at the beginning where he's presented with a kind of a bedraggled uh, teddy bear, and because he's box troll, not human, he opens it up and takes a little music box out of it and plays with that. And so he, in one way, he's really very much adapted to the culture of the box trolls. In another way, he hasn't. He maintains the courage uh, that they don't have uh, to stand up for what's going for, for, for them um, of a human. And so he's kind of got the best of both worlds. And with Winnie, uh, I like the fact that she's very resilient, that she doesn't need her parents to all of a sudden wake up and discover that they've been bad parents, that you know she's going to be okay. Because what, what, what you see is her trajectory. She begins as somebody who's sort of fascinated in a macabre way with her vision of what the box trolls are doing, with how grisly they are. And she wants to go and see the blood and guts that she imagines are surrounding them. And yet she turns on a dime when she realizes how great they are. And, you know, so she does have kind of a trajectory of her own that I thought was nice. Right. Well, I mean, there's also in in not only Winifred, but in the entire town's construction of the evil enemy of the box trolls, right? It seems like there's, Mm -hmm. there's some political parable in there that, for me, again, was not that well carried through. But the idea would essentially be that the box trolls are being created as a common enemy in order to uphold the incredibly unequal social structure of Cheesebridge. Yes. Now we have to, I I really want to talk about um, two of my favorite characters in the film, which are the henchmen uh, of the Red Hats, because they have a genuine existential dilemma. And they keep sort of saying, now we are the good guys, right? And uh, and they have a charming moment, as you said, at the at the end of the film. Yeah, the I agree. These are the two best characters in the movie for me. And uh, the, yeah. the box trolls, if the box trolls were actual characters and had more time on screen, they would be my favorites. But I think yeah. that they sort of get turned into this herd of victims, you know, that the rest yeah. of the human characters are fighting to save. And that is a real, I think, flaw in the script. But mm-hmm. the, my favorite two characters who actually get to do something and get developed 
are these two, Mr. Trout and Mr. Pickles. Isn't that their names? They're voiced yes. by Nick Frost and Richard Ayoade, both British comics. Richard Ayoade is also a, a director, has made two really interesting movies himself. But they create this great kind of Laurel and Hardy dynamic with these two working-class guys that are the henchmen of, of, of the bad guy. And as you say, they are always debating the morality of their position and, and of their job. And there's something very sweet and touching about how they, you know, you see especially the, I think it's Mr. Pickles, the Richard Ayoade character, keeps you know, losing faith with each scene that what they're doing is the right I'm thing. I'm 80% sure that we're, that we're the good guys. Right. Know, he says it sort of goes down. And so he's got kind of a trajectory, and, and I, thought, I thought that was nice, too. And then, as you say, during the credits, I'm kind of skipping ahead here and spoiling the very, very end, but the credits are very worth staying for in this movie, as they are in all Pixar movies, right? The animators can't stop cramming in more little gifts and fun things. And one of the things that you see is what I believe must be some of the preliminary drawings for Cheesebridge and just flat, you know, 2D drawings that are really wonderful, kind of Dr. Caligari-like, showing these these leaning structures in the town. But then another thing that we see at some point is Mr. Trout and Mr. Pickles sitting around having a philosophical discussion, as they do, and then they start to have this kind of almost theological discussion about what if everything we're doing is being moved? What if we're just being moved by hands that we can't feel? And then slowly fading in, you start to see... Uh, I believe it's Travis Knight. Travis 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 Knight. He's the CEO, uh, and he is also one of their head animators. He uh, was working on the last scene that they were filming the day that I was there, and I got to talk to him about it. Did you get to see him doing any of the moving of of figures at all? Yes, and what I saw that really, a lot of stuff that I saw blew my mind, but especially is how intricate their shot sheet was. He had everything plotted out to the nanosecond. You know, if any individual animator makes it to four seconds a week. They feel like they've done a lot. They average about 3.7 seconds a week. And the other thing that really blew my mind is that every frame that you see was taken with the same sort of basic uh, $300 SLR camera that, you know, most amateur photographers carry around. They have a lot of very high-end equipment like their 3D printers, but uh, the film itself is just made on a regular SLR camera. Oh, wow. Fascinating. So so you see some of those four seconds get put together yeah. or a little yeah. bit more and, and you see, you know, the actual movements in fast motion. I actually sort of wish that they had been in real time because I would love to see how much each, each you know, gesture um, changes from the last. I would love to see basically how long it takes to get, you know, one complete gesture from, from one of the dolls. But it is really cool to see him putting it all together at the very end. It is. And one thing that I know we agree on is how fabulous the visuals are. And, uh, you know, they take out tiny little pins and they hand knit every sweater. Everything is done by hand. And my favorite thing is that the motto of Leica is no straight lines, no sharp angles, no perfect circles. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that, that you really see that 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 aesthetic of, of imperfection and kind of realness, you know, in, in every frame. And this is why, I mean, I really don't like coming down on the story of the box trolls because it's dazzling from a technical and visual point of view, enough so that it took me an hour into the movie before I started to sense that there was something about the story that was just not doing it for me. Yeah, the visuals are amazing. And in fact, when I was there, I noticed a lot of extremely funny puns about cheese that were written on little shop signs. And I thought, oh, I can't wait to see that in the movie. And of course, it goes by so fast, you don't see any of that in the movie. And so you have to go back and maybe look at the at the DVD afterward and, um, and just see the incredible intricacy. You know, I love Pixar and I love computer animation, but there's a kind of a pristine quality to it that can be sterile at times. And in a world where, you know, all of our gadgets uh, are, are prized for having no buttons and being so sleek and 
futuristic. It's really nice to see, to see the high touch of a movie like this one where every single thing that you see, it was put together by people. Yeah, just knowing that gives a different kind of thrill to the image, the way Fantastic Mr. Fox does it, because it's like, exactly. if you're a miniatures person, you know, which yeah. I happen to be, someone who just absolutely loves dollhouses and could look at them mm-hmm. and play with them forever, you just want to climb into the movie and start playing with everything yourself. Yeah. So we should get to spoiling the actual climax of the movie. We can we can zoom past a little bit of plot, but let's get to the the part at the end of the movie that actually resembles something like a, a summer action flick in some ways, including a big mechanized robotic creature that plows through the streets of Cheesebridge, powered by Archibald Snatcher. That's right. Uh, yes. Well, uh, Snatcher um, is about to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and get that white hat that he so desperately wants and that Lord Portly Rhine so desperately doesn't want to give him when he's, I mean, really, if there's ever been a villain hoist by his own petard, that's got to be it. Well, at that point, I'm trying to remember now, this is the point when all the box trolls are locked away, right? Yeah. So the box trolls have has basically all been imprisoned. And, and it, there's almost, there's basically an implication that, you know, genocide is around the corner. And there's an attempt to flatten all of the box trolls with a giant, I can't remember what they're even dropping on them. Yeah. And we should say also that uh, another thing that I thought was was kind of nice is that all along Snatcher has been supposed to have been exterminating the box trolls and and the certainly the remaining box trolls thought that the ones who had been taken were dead and Eggs since we're spoiling it thought that his father was dead and had been killed but in fact they were all sort of toiling away uh somewhere and had been captured now we get to the point where they're all going to be killed and um at the last minute uh it doesn't happen. Right. So Eggs and Winifred come upon them in the place that they've been they've been kept all this time. And they also come upon this this man hanging upside down with long hair and a beard who appears to have been kept in this dungeon for many years that we gradually discover over the course of this climactic sequence, which is pretty long, really about the last 20 minutes of the movie, is, is Eggs' long-lost father, who was also presumed to be dead, but who has just been captured by the bad guys for all these years. And who's played by Simon Pegg. Yes, in another, I thought, really underutilized vocal performance. Yeah. I mean, seeing Simon Pegg on the on the cast list, I was really excited for his character to come in. I couldn't figure out when he was going to come in. That character has a really small role. And also, this is just going to be me saying the same thing I keep saying about this movie, but I feel like that emotional trajectory between him and his son is not taken seriously enough and is not resolved. I mean, it's pretty intense, right? The kid comes across his father who's been hanging upside down in a dungeon for 10 years and seems to have gone insane and talks only about jelly and how if he's good, he will be given jelly. And I love the twist that Simon Pegg puts on the word jelly. But but then he sort of just gets sane again when he sees his son. I just didn't feel like there was a real moment of, of loss and connection and just, oh, good Lord, you know, we found each other again. And how can I get my father right side up and not crazy? You know, it just it all just yeah. sort of seemed like it resolved itself too soon. I agree. I, I think this is one thing. The one criticism I would make is that it's possible to get lost, uh, the forest lost in the trees. I think they do focus so much on the intricacies of the visuals and the uh, sort of the operational and production issues that you know, there was a little bit of plot loss there and a little bit of emotional growth loss there. I agree with that. It's just very busy. You know, the climax yeah. of that film is very, very busy. It's like the egg story with his father has to be resolved. And of course, the box trolls life or death story has to be resolved. And is, is Archibald going to become a red hat? And is Winifred going to resolve the crisis with her parents? And there's really a lot. I mean, it's a TV series worth <laughs> of, of action. And some of it, I think, just sort of gets rushed through and falls by the wayside a bit. 
You know, when my son was a little boy, he once asked me, why is it that bad guys in movies always die from falling off buildings? Because that's another issue that comes up in movies that are PG-13 or less, which is how you can get rid of the bad guy in a way that's not disgusting and gross and overly violent for kids. And you're right that this is sort of cosmically violent in that and stature explodes as a result of the cheese, but it's also there's a kind of a um, there's a kind of a rightness to it and a kind of a benignness to it that it's no other character that has to take him out. It's that uh, he is doing it to himself. Right. And that that again, is a classic dilemma. Right. How do yeah. you get rid of the bad guy in a satisfyingly violent way without yeah. making the good guy have to do something horrible? Exactly. To him? Yeah. So yes, as you say, and this to me again was a weakness of the movie. And in, in part because it's just unoriginal, right? Um, there's a big Monty Python quote at the very end of the movie. It's essentially the waffer then after dinner mint when he eats that last bite of cheese and explodes, right? Yeah. It should be noted, actually, speaking of Monty Python, that Eric Idle wrote a song for this movie, and it's quite wonderful. Yeah. He writes a song about the box trolls that the, uh, yeah. the Archibald Snatcher in drag performs. Yeah. Yeah, suicide by cheese. So, But the gross cheese explosion didn't leave you with sort of a... a bad, queasy feeling from the, for the whole movie? Uh, no, it did not. I, I, As I said, I was so relieved that none of our heroes had to take responsibility for getting rid of Snatcher in, in, a, in a permanent way, uh, and that he did it to himself. Uh, I just took it as kind of a cartoonish uh, Bugs Bunny-type right. conclusion. Yeah, I guess for me, there was just something a little bit about the resolution of this movie that I didn't walk out feeling like, wow, I've really been on this journey, and it's just all kind of buckled back together at the end. And Coraline, you know, is able to give you that feeling. Coraline does that. Both Coraline and Paranorman really come down to little girls being comforted. And uh, and there is something very, very satisfying about that. And in this one, you have uh, the bad guy um, who uh, just has to be gotten rid of, um, but there's no kind of reaching back to put your arms around someone that was hurt in the past, unless it's maybe Mr. Jelly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess there are, in in theory, kind of a lot of um, hugs and resolutions at the end, right? Fish and eggs get to get back together, and yeah. and, uh, and and eggs finds his father, and all of that. But I guess there wasn't any relationship in the movie at that point. There wasn't any single relationship that seemed so central and so important, and so having been developed in such a worthy way that I felt like it it it, it all came back together at the end. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. I agree. All of that said, though, I think I would still send people who are interested in animation as an art form and who liked the previous two Leica films to this one. I think I came with a big bundle of high expectations that were somewhat disappointed. I don't think I'm going to take my eight-year-old, but that's essentially just because I think she'll find Snatcher too scary. Um, But I would send people with their kids, especially older kids. It seems like for the, what would you say, 10 to 13 age range? Yeah, definitely. Um, I wouldn't take, particularly for 3D movies, I don't recommend that for anybody under six or seven anyway. And some of the grotesque stuff might be a little bit much for the little, little kids. But yeah, I think that, I think this is, uh, a rare movie for 10 year olds and, uh, and up and anyone who loves animation. Uh, because I think the animation is just gorgeous. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. Despite all the negative things I've just said, I think if anybody feels the need to see box trolls, they should go. And maybe they'll love the lactose intolerant sight gags <laughs> and, and they'll find the end very satisfying. I know that people on Twitter have reacted very strongly to my mildly negative review and said, this is great. You know, what are you saying? And so, yeah, I, I think if, if people are inclined, they should go. And I will go to see anything that they do at this studio. I am just nuts about their work. I, 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 and it, they are so singular and so 
personal in a way. That's such an individual vision, and I just love what they do. It's so non-institutional. I agree with you there, and I'm jealous that you got to, to visit them in Portland. Now I want to get a big DVD feature of this so I can see some of the, some of the stuff in progress that you got to look at. Ah, it's wonderful. All right. No, well, that was a great spoiler. Thanks again for coming in, and please come do it again sometime. Anytime. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.